Thank God today, and this is Pastor Adams, the president and the founder of Truth Matters Ministries, and we're so thankful that you've joined our Truth Matters podcast today. We're so excited about this episode that we've been going through, this teaching of effective evangelism. In our last three episodes, we've really tried to drill down into the mechanics and the application and execution of how we can be more effective in our evangelism. What we're going to do today is we're going to continue uh, in this very important genre of effective evangelism. We're going to be talking about so many different approaches and different avenues of being effective in our evangelism. But before we get into our teaching on today, we're going to pause and pray. It's once again, we come before you, Father, with exceeding joy. Lord, our very lives are open before you. We thank you that even though our lives are open, our lives are also hid in Christ. We thank you that you've made us more than conquerors. We thank you that you've, Lord, established us upon a rock. We're so grateful today, Lord God, that we're securing you. We also, Lord God, we're just in awe that you told us that we can come and we can pray to you. And if we would seek you, we would find you. You promised us, Lord, that if we knocked, you said the door would be open. If you you said if we ask, you said you said we should re, we shall receive, and Lord, we just ask you today to bless every person who's tuned into this podcast. Let their lives be trained, be changed. Let them be trained in how they can be more effective in their evangelism. Let evangelism have a top priority in their life. Let their care and concern for the lost be so important in their life. Let it be a premium, a priority. Let them be faithful to the commandments that you've given that we should go into all the world. Let them, Lord, have a priority in letting their light shine. Let them be a witness. Let them be an example of your goodness and your kindness. We give your name praise. We give your name glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray today. Amen. And our, our minds are our minds are so thoughtful about the things that were shared by one of the really great historians, Blaise Pascal, said that truth, it's so obscure in these days. And he said that falsehoods are so well established everywhere that unless the people of God really love the truth, he said, we can't even know it. We won't be able to discern what's true. There are so many falsehoods in the world. There are so many artificial constructs and philosophies and ideologies in the world that sometimes as we navigate through the world's spiritual landscape, we are sometimes being deceived and we're stepping on spiritual landmines. And then one thing that I found so important is the words that were spoken by Patrick Fitzgerald, who was the lead prosecuting attorney in the infamous Scooter Libby trial. He said that truth is the engine. It's the core. It's what runs our country's justice system. And he said that if we don't have that truth, he says, we don't have anything. And true are the words of Adam Schiff when he recently made remarks, the closing remarks in the Donald Trump impeachment hearings. He said, right matters. Truth matters. Without truth, he says, we're lost. No wonder when we go into court proceedings, we're asked to put left hands on Bibles and right hands in the air. And we affirm to tell the truth, the whole truth, 
and nothing but the truth. Why? Because truth matters. And today in this Truth Matters broadcast, we're going to continue in our area of effective evangelism. We're going to share about a very important aspect, and that is approaches to evangelism. We spoke about what is called that it would be the law to the pride to the proud, and it would be grace to the humble. And we've also shared in previous episodes about how we can use the law and we can show a man that's need for salvation to show him that he is a sinner through the law, to show him that he's in defiance of God's commandments and that he's guilty and he's worthy of death and hell and destruction. But when he humbles him heart, his heart, then he can see that grace is available through the preaching of the gospel and the completed work on Calvary, the atonement provided through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And once that person, he humbles himself and he cries out, And just as the Roman jailer said, he said, what must I do to be saved? And Paul responded, believe on the Lord Jesus, what he's done on Calvary, and you shall be saved in your house. And so we're going to continue this week on some approaches to evangelism. We also are going to give some very important principles, some do's and don'ts as it relates to evangelism. One of the seven evangelism approaches is what's called lifestyle evangelism, which means that you can evangelize people not so much with words, but when you couple words with your example of purity and you have a demonstration of values, it's a very effective partner to the words that you share. And then there's also another approach to evangelism, which is called servant evangelism. Things such as your acts of kindness and the sacrifices that you make for others, it can go a long way in helping someone understand that what comes out of you, your acts and your deeds, it's a part of your evangelism. And then there's event evangelism. You can do things such as having food drives and health checkups and music concerts. There are so many ways that you can be effective in evangelism and you can incorporate all of the other principles that we've shared during this series. And then there's neighborhood evangelism. You can do care bags and you can do literacy campaigns and you can just go through neighborhoods and you can do door hangings on doors. That's something that we've done quite effectively is that we've done door hangings and we'll knock on doors and we'll just come in, not to necessarily preach to people, but to just do servant evangelism And then at that same time, we'll give them a message. We'll pray for them and we'll just show them we love them and we'll plant seeds. And then there's street preaching evangelism. It's integrated approach. You can do feeding and clothes drives here in Atlanta. What we've done for a number of years is that we've gone to Hurt Park. So many great people have have partnered with me and the Morehouse men, the Georgia State University students. And then also we've had many students, the Youth for Christ would come out and we would just collectively would would feed, we would do pancakes and we would do sandwiches and we collect bags of clothing, boots, and we put together what we call comfort packages. We would have razors in there for people to shave. We would have wet ones so that they could clean up for those who were homeless. We would give them flashlights and batteries and things so those who were living on the street when they were not in the shelters, they could have lights. 
those things are so valuable. Then there's tract evangelism, where through social media and targeted mailings and devotionals, you can really be effective in your evangelism. And then there's relational evangelism. It's segmented, it's gradual, and it's built on content and context. Some very important measures as it relates to being effective in our evangelism. And another important aspect of evangelism are the things that we should do. And there's about 15. I'm going to go through them quickly. And you don't have to write them down. You can just simply go back and listen to the podcast again if you don't get them all. But one thing that you should do is pray. And do speak to please God. Do start with a positive witness for Christ. Do keep things simple and plant seeds when you're speaking with people about our Lord. Do share your salvation experience with them. Do know essentials of the Christian faith. And we're going to be doing a series on that in upcoming weeks. Do have a genuine love for their soul. Do be simple and define terms. Don't give them all of your million dollar words and all of your buzz phrases and all your theological definitions. It'll just confuse them. Do be ready to learn from the people you witness to. You should be willing to ask more questions and show more concern about them than perhaps giving them all of your stories. Do be patient and gentle. Do listen intently. Do answer their questions. And do ask questions. Do let them save face. If they perhaps have been wrong in an area, don't try to show them up and slice them up with your uh, knowledge of the Bible or your your semantics or all of your methodologies of how you can win an argument. Don't embarrass them, but let them down easy. Let them save face. Otherwise, they'll be hurt. They'll be crushed. And even though they know you're right, they'll find you offensive and they will stiff arm you. Do encourage them to study the Bible by itself versus doing things such as the Watchtower and Bible Track Society does, where they have them read the New World Translation along with the Awake and the Watchtower magazines. Now let's talk about some things that we should not do. Don't ever attack people or their leaders. And one thing that you should always do is don't make fun of other people. Don't jump from one subject to another. Don't expect too much from people. Don't have a spiritual chip on your shoulder where I just don't like those Mormons and I'm just so tired of those Muslims and I'm going to do everything I can to show them they're wrong. People have so many motives. Don't be impatient with people for results. Don't be loud. Don't be defensive. Don't be condescending. You won't be effective in your evangelism. Don't debate with people. Don't speak about peripheral things or non-essential issues or doctrines. Don't get sidetracked defending your denomination or your church. Don't be short with people and don't be deflective or don't minimize them. Don't mis misrepresent any of their teachings or doctrines or their viewpoints. Don't argue with people. Don't defend yourself. And don't speak too fast or unclearly with people. Just make sure that you take time to demonstrate and show that you care about them. And if you do those things, and then if you don't do those things as well, 
then you will be so much more effective in your evangelism. And what we're going to do right now is we're going to talk about a very important aspect of being effective in evangelism, and it's called driving sinners to the Savior. John Wycliffe, John Wycliffe, who was a really great Bible translator, said, the highest service to which any man can attain on earth is to preach the law of God. Why? Because it will drive sinners to faith in the Savior, to everlasting life. Martin Luther said the first duty of the gospel preacher is to declare God's law and show the nature of sin. As we really listen to these quotes, these men have so much conviction. You can feel it right in the, the, the their teeth grit together. They say things like, if you do not use the law in gospel proclamation, you will fill the church up with false converts. You have stony ground hearers who receive the word with joy and gladness. And that's it. Martin Luther also said, Satan, the God of all dissension, stirs up daily new sex. And last of all, which of all others I should never have foreseen or once suspected. He has raised up a sex such as that teaches that men should not be terrified by the law but instead gently exhorted by preaching the grace of Christ. So what is Luther saying? He's saying, listen, guys, there's a demonic satanic sect that's just risen up. Man, I never thought I would have believed that this could happen. He's raised up, Satan has raised up a sect such as teach that men should not be terrified by the law of God, but instead just be gently exhorted by the preaching of the grace of Christ which perfectly sums up what most of our evangelism has come. You turn on the television today and you hear so many preachers and teachers. All they want to talk to you about is if you get saved, then you're going to begin to walk in God's principle. The Lord Jesus Christ is going to become your partner in business. He's going to be your, your co-pilot as you begin to climb the corporate ladder. He's going to save you from testing, from trials, and your life is going to be a bed of ease. The sunshine is going to shine all day. No more pain. By wielding faith, you can even make your genie in the bottle, Jesus Christ, stop the tornado from coming. Your new genie in the bottle, Jesus Christ, will even cause every pain to leave. If you get constipated, you're Genie Jesus Christ will cause your bowels to be released. People have so many crazy ideas of what salvation is. John Wesley said in writing to a young evangelist, hear me. He said, preach 90% law and 10% grace. Instead of all the things you can get with Jesus, instead of talking about oh, how wonderful it is and all the, the joys that come from being born again. And there are some joys. There is a lot in grace, but that should only be 10% of it. So you might be thinking 90% law and only 10% grace? Or couldn't it be 50-50? Think of it like this. Imagine I'm a doctor and you're a patient. You have a terminal disease. I have the cure, but it's absolutely essential that you are totally committed to this cure. If you're not 100% committed, it's not going to work. So how am I going to handle it? Here's how uh, 
Dr. Ray Comfort explains it, and this is probably how it should be handled. He say, come in here, sit down. I have some very serious news for you. You have a terminal disease. So as you begin to see the patient shake, you think to yourself, good. He's beginning to see the seriousness of this situation. Then you take out the charts and the x-rays, and then you let the patient see the poison that's seeping through his system. And you speak for 10 whole minutes about all the terrible things that this disease is going to do to his body. And after you've done that, how long do you think that you have to talk to him about the cure? Not long at all. When you're sitting there trembling for 10 minutes and somebody say, oh, by the way, I got the cure. You grab the cure and you gulp it down right away. Your knowledge of the disease and its horrific consequences has made the desire the cure. So you don't have to say, well, let me tell you everything about Jesus. Let me dot every I. Let me talk to you about his sermon on the mount. Let me share with you about the miracle that he had with the, the, the loaves and the fish. Let me share with you about when he walked on water. That's not the main thing. If this man is terrified of the disease of death, he's going to say, what's going to save me? It's Jesus. Let me take Jesus now and I'll learn of him later. That's why Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. Then learn of me. We want to teach him everything about Jesus. And we haven't even got them horrified about the destination of death. You see, before men, men become Christians, they have as much desire for righteousness as a four-year-old boy has of taking a bath. What's the point? Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness in Matthew 5 and 6. How many non-Christians do you know who are hungering and thirsting after righteousness? The Bible says there are none who seek after God. It says they love darkness and they hate the light. Neither will they come to the light that their deeds will be exposed. The only thing they drink in is iniquity like water, according to Job 15. But the night I was confronted with the spiritual nature of God's law, and I understood that God requires truth in the inward parts, that he saw my thought life. He saw everything, my lust, my adultery, my hatred, my murder. I begin, I began to say, I, I can see I'm condemned. I must do whatever I got to do to make it right. How can I be made right? I began to hunger and thirst for righteousness. The law put salt on my tongue. It was the schoolmaster to bring me to Christ. Charles Spurgeon said they will never accept grace until they tremble before a just and holy law. Charles Spurgeon said they will never accept grace until they tremble before him. John Newton said this. He's the one who wrote the song Amazing Grace. Now, if anybody had a grip on grace, it was Newton. But this is what he said. The correct understanding of the harmony between law and grace is to preserve oneself from being entangled by the errors on the right hand and on the left. Charles Finney, the great evangelist, said, Evermore, the law must prepare the way for the gospel. To overlook this as instructing souls is almost certain to result in false hope. 
and then the introduction of a false standard of the Christian experience, and then to fill the church with what? False converts. So let's follow up, stillborns. Uh, Dr. Comfort had mentioned the first thing that happened when David Wilkerson said when he called him on his car phone. He said, I thought that the only one who didn't really believe in in follow up. Now, I believe in feeding a new convert and all of us should believe in feeding new converts. But what happens sometimes when we're so busy trying to nurture them? And yes, discipling people is important. But I don't believe in following a person around and try come on to the Bible study, come on to the new beginners class, come on to Sunday school, make sure you're at the, the, the Sunday service, make sure you're at the midweek service, and all the things that we do trying to pamper people to get involved in church. That's not even in scripture. I can't even find that example in scripture. Think about the Ethiopian eunuch. He was left without a follow-up. But how could he survive? All he had was God in the scriptures. Follow-up for those who don't know is when we get the decisions. You're following up for a decision. But if a person's already made a decision, We're taking people, trying to get them to go to the church, and we're taking away from those who should be laborers in the harvest field. We have so many few of them as it is, and we give them disheartening task of running after people to confirm that their decision was legitimate, to make sure that they're going to go on and follow God. We've got to stop that. That's a sad admission to the amount of confidence that we have in the power of our message in the keeping power of God. If God has really saved them, God will keep them. If they're born of God, they'll never die. If he's begun a good work on them, he'll complete it until the day of Jesus Christ, according to Philippians 1 and 6. If he's the author of their faith, then he'll be the finisher of their faith. He's able to save them to the utmost. Anyone that comes to God by him, according to Hebrews 7 and 5, he's able to keep them from falling and to present them faultless before his presence in his glory with exceeding joy. Jesus says, no one will pluck them from my father's hand. You see, the problem is that Lazarus was in his graves for four days dead. Now, you can run up to the tomb and you can pull, try to pull him out. You can try to prop Lazarus up. You can try to open up his eyes, but guess what? He still stinks. The only thing that's going to make him alive is he needs to hear the voice of the Son of God, the sinner of four, a sinner who is four days dead in his sins. We can run up and say, say this prayer. Still, he needs to hear the voice of the Son of God. There's no life that's in him. The thing that primes a sinner's ear is to hear the voice of the Son of God, and that is his law. It's the schoolmaster to bring him to Christ, that he might be justified through faith. According to Galatians 3 and 24, he needs to hear God's voice through the law. And then after he hears his voice, the law works to convert to convert the soul, according to Psalms 19 and 7. And then you can tell him to jump. Just go back to the example that we shared in previous episodes about the person who's riding the plane. Now, imagine that you're sitting on a plane and you're sipping your coffee, you're biting a cookie and watching a movie. It's a good flight. It's very pleasurable. Then suddenly you hear this is the captain speaking. 
I have an announcement to make. The tail section of this plane has just fallen off and we're about to crash. And we're at about 25,000 feet, but we're dropping. There's a parachute under your seat. We'd appreciate it if you just put it on. Thank you for attention and thank you for flying with this airline. What's the first thing you're going to say? What? 25,000 feet. The tail's dropped off. Man, I'm glad to be wearing this parachute. You look at the guy that's sitting next to you and he's still eating his cookie. He's still sipping his coffee. He's watching the movie. You say, excuse me, did you hear the captain? Put the parachute on. He turns you and he says, oh, I don't really think the captain means it. Besides, I'm quite happy. Thank you so much. Don't turn to him in sincere zeal and say, oh, please put the parachute on. It'll be better than the movie you're watching. Now, that doesn't make sense. Do, do it. If you tell him that somehow the parachute is going to improve his flight, he's going to put it on for the wrong motive. But if you want him to put and keep it on, you tell him about what's going to happen. He's going to have to jump out that plane. You say, excuse me, it, I, we have to ignore the captain. And you have, if you want to ignore the captain, you can. But you don't need to ignore the captain this time. You cannot jump out of this plane without a parachute. You're going to fall 125 miles per hour and you're going to be smashed like a bug. He says, well, I'm sorry, I beg your pardon. I said, if you jump without a parachute, gravity is going to get you and you're going to die. He says, oh, goodness me, I see what you're saying. Thank you so much. But uh, I'm not really bothered. Now, if you look around, you'll find that there are penny passengers on that plane. They're all enjoying their flight. They're enjoying the pleasures of sin for a season. Go up and say, excuse me, did you hear the command from our captain of our salvation? He said, put on Jesus Christ. He turns to you and says, oh, I really don't think God means it. God is love. Besides, I'm quite happy as I am. Thanks. Don't turn to him in sincere zeal without knowledge and say, please put on the Lord Jesus. He'll give you love. He'll give you joy. He'll give you fulfillment and lasting happiness. You've got a God-shaped vacuum in your heart, and that only needs to be filled by God. If you have marriage problem, a drug problem, an alcohol problem, just give your heart to Jesus. No, he'll give you the wrong commitment. Instead, say, Oh, God, give me courage and tell him about the jump. Just say, hey, it's appointed unto men to die once. And if you die in your sins, God will be forced to give you justice. And in his judgment, he's going to be very thorough. He's going to judge you for every idle word that you speak. You're going to have to give an account thereof on the day of judgment. If you've lusted, if you've committed adultery, if you've hated someone, if you've committed murder, and Jesus warned that justice will be thorough and the fist of eternal wrath will come down upon you and ground you to powder. God bless. Now, if I'm talking about hellfire preaching, I'm not talking to you about hellfire preaching because hellfire preacher preaching only produces fear-filled converts. Using God's law will produce tear-filled converts. I'm going to say it again. Hellfire preaching will only produce fear-filled converts, but using God's law will produce tear-filled converts. One person comes because he wants to escape the fires of hell, but in his heart he thinks God is harsh and unjust because the law hasn't been used to show him the exceeding sinful nature that he has. He doesn't see that hell is being a just desert, and he deserves hell. Therefore, he doesn't understand mercy or grace, and therefore he lacks gratitude to God and his mercy, and gratitude is the prime motivation for evangelism. Gratitude 
is the prime motivation for evangelism. There'll be no zeal in the heart of a false convert if we evangelize properly. And then as we end our 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 podcast today, we have to realize that God gave us 10 canons. And this is something that's so important. You have to realize that you have those canons. Now, if somebody used you know, let's just say that somebody was cursing God and someone was really saying something bad. You would have to come and you would have to stop them for, from, from doing something like that. They wouldn't even think it was wrong. But understand something. We have to make our calling and our election sure. Now, I challenge you to the validity of your salvation. Modern evangelism says never question your salvation. But the Bible says the exact opposite. It says examine yourself to see if you're in the faith according to 2 Corinthians 13 and 5. Better now than on the day of judgment. The Bible says make your calling and election sure in 2 Peter 1 and 10. So today you need to readjust the motive for your commitment. Friend, don't let pride stop you. Everyone who is proud of heart is an abomination to the Lord. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So humble yourself before the mighty hand of God. He'll exalt you in due time. Call it a recommittal. Call it a committal. But whatever you call it, make sure you make your calling and election sure. We thank you for taking time to listen to this podcast. There are some things that's in a priority in this world. You find your proper priority. Some things in life, they don't really matter. But remember, all the time, truth does matter. God bless you.